It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. I've been going through a series uh, called Suffering Well. Uh, in Over the past couple weeks, we had the Story Summit that sort of injected itself in the middle of it, so there were a few that were dedicated to the specific topic of story and how that impacts the Christian life and experience. And uh, then we've sort of jumped back into this. And I, whether or not this is the last one, I think I might have one more on this topic. We'll see. But uh, this is one of my favorite meditations. It really is. And it's been very significant in my life. And to try and, whenever you go through challenge and difficulty, Uh, which is just part and parcel of life. We spend a good deal of our life attempting to immunize ourselves against challenge. And uh, as the old adage goes in movie making, a movie without a conflict is a very dull one. And yet in our own lives, we repel conflict, we repel difficulty, we repel challenge as if it is the plague. So... How do we grasp, how do we absorb the notion of how God instructs us in regards to difficulty? And to actually do that, to saturate, to to allow ourselves to be immersed in God's thinking, it changes us. It really does. Just like a cucumber immersing in vinegar changes into a new creature, a new food group, a new food, uh, a pickle. Uh, So do we. When we immerse ourselves in the truth of God, it actually alters us. And there's nothing quite like the freedom that comes when a Christian can finally begin to rejoice in sufferings and have joy when they face trials of many kinds and not consider it strange when they face different trials and different challenges. And so when we actually have that as a foundation, it's, it's transformative to our life. So this is called the Invitation to the Cave. And my clicker isn't on. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so what you see is Paul giving a contrast with what he is dealing with now compared to what is going to come. And basically, no matter how difficult this is, what is to come outshines it and makes it worth it. It's the, uh, the illustration he will use is one of childbirth, which is always awkward for us as men to know how to talk through because you're like, well, you've never gone through it, Eric. You shouldn't speak on this. And I understand and I agree, okay? But Paul does, in the word of God, talk about that travail and that there is something so worth it that you are going through. And when you get to that child, that life that comes forth, it causes the pains of childbirth, of the travail of childbirth, to pale next to the value and the joys that are to come. So this is the modeling that we see in Scripture, and that does not mean that it isn't pain in the here and now. You know, many of us have wondered, did Jesus actually experience pain, or did he just look like he did? And it's, it's odd to think he actually did feel the nails. He did feel the cat of nine tails rip his flesh out. He did feel the thorns press into his brow. He's a human when he was here. Now, yes, he was God, but he was human. And as a result, he felt what humans feel. He was tempted as humans 
are tempted. To give way to despair, to give way to uh, the anguish of suffering, to have it overwhelm like a flood, that you despair even of life. And so to recognize that Jesus himself faced trials, faced those difficulties, and yet modeled something. And that is that there was a joy set before him which enabled him to endure. We need to always recognize that there is something that always comes out, a joy that is set before us. So no matter what pile of manure is in our uh, life at the moment, that that is being converted, in, even in our understanding, into fertilizer for even a greater joy, a greater triumph. The choice of the now. In our life, we have the now and then the future. And in the now, there is a bait to say, just live for now. This is when you're alive. This, you don't know about what's going to come, and so there's this bait. And many of us as Christians even fall for it, but this is the mentality of the world. And so therefore, even though your mom says you're going to get skin cancer if you don't put on you know, some kind of uh, high SPF rating uh, of, uh, I can't even think of sunblock, well then, you know, but I remember thinking, I'm going to stick on baby oil because I'm going to get a good tan now. And, you know, what's the good of being young if you don't have a good tan? And when I go to the beach to play beach volleyball, I'm expecting that tan to do wonders for me. I mean, that's, that's like all part of the strategy. I don't want to have SPF 50 on, and then I'm going to be white as a sheet when I go to play beach volleyball. I mean, hey, I got a life to live. It's right now. It's happening now. Sure, you know, in the years to come, but I'm sure they're going to invent something that will take care of skin cancer. Right? So the, the life of the one who lives in the now actually dies in the end. It's the life of the fool is the way Proverbs looks at it. But we are being asked to forsake things in the now, to forsake certain creature comforts, certain pleasures, certain things that the world's like, hey, why aren't you doing this? So that we can get something greater in the end. Tugging a pull on our soul, too, is not easy. So we have an illustration of this in Scripture. Jesus gives it. It's the choice of the rich man. And so I'll just read it for you. It's a very interesting story. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores Okay, now, so if I'm just going to stop right there, and I were to say, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be the rich man who fares or eats sumptuously every day uh, and is clothed in purple and fine linen? I mean, that just sounds so nice. I mean, by the way, that's stylish, okay? If you're purple and fine linen, I know you're like, I don't know if I like the color purple. No, that's a good thing back then. Or you could be Lazarus, who's a beggar and who is uh, laid at, his, at the rich man's gate, and he's full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So we just stop right there, and I were to say, okay, which one do you choose? Well, instinctively, we all are going to choose the rich man, of course. We're not going to be that idiotic and choose Lazarus, right? Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died. Oh, no. And was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that they may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Fascinating story in so many regards. I mean, we could talk about the very odd fact that there is going to be a Lazarus that rises from the dead, and Jesus himself is going to rise from the dead, and they don't believe. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of fascinating wrinkles to this, but the point I want to bring out is the fact that if you saw the eternal landscape of these two men, now, if we don't see the eternal, we choose the rich man. But if you see the eternal, and I were to set the two lives out before you, and I say, which one do you choose? You have, you have a choice, and you have to make it, and each one of us is going one of two ways today. We're either going with the rich man who fares sumptuously in this life prior to death, but then is tormented forever and always. Or we could go with Lazarus and experience trials and sufferings of an undue nature, because they're, they're abnormal sufferings that Lazarus is going through, and yet we will be eternally comforted. Now, I don't know how your brain works that over, but mine does come to the conclusion that I think Jesus is wanting me to come to, which is, all right, I see it. I choose Lazarus. And someone in the world could say, what did you just choose? I would rather be a beggar now with sores all over my body, being, those sores being licked by dogs, but have the fullness of life forever and always with Jesus Christ. Then to choose to have a blip on the screen of eternity of pleasure now and be tormented forever and always and be separated from him. I choose Jesus. You do know what that could mean, Eric. Yes, I do. So that's what I'm going to, I call this message the invitation to the cave. Okay, we are being invited into a more difficult version of living. The cave that I'm going to be referring to, if you hang around Ellerslie, you hear me bring it up, is the cave of Adullam. And that is in the Valley of Elah. It's a it's a series of caves where in the Valley of Elah is where David fought Goliath and where I always postulate that David's probably cared for his sheep. It's, it would be a great, it has this huge tree and it's called the Va Valley of Elah is the Valley of the Great Tree, the Great Terebinth. It's just a great tree for shade and then a series of caves so if it rains you can go into the caves. Also you can stand at the cave opening and protect your sheep behind you from wild beasts. Not a bad model, right? Why did David go to the cave of Adullam? He probably knew the cave of Adullam, probably grew up in the cave of Adullam while tending to his sheep. So that's just my, my hypothesis. But it's interesting because a shepherd gets the privilege of living in a cave. And the shepherd is the lowest of the low of the low of the culture. And so if you're the eighth son, it's always the lowest in rank and order that gets the sheep, that gets the cave. And yet what you see is God flips that on its head and takes the lowest and makes him the greatest. And so we're seeing this pattern that in the kingdom of heaven, what looks low in the natural eyes is actually of great value and great strength. And so don't forsake the low. And then in the cave, I mean, if you were going to choose a palace or a cave, Saul is in a palace, David is in a cave. 
Saul has been anointed king, but then rejected by God. David is anointed, but then guess what? Saul doesn't recognize him, so he's being persecuted and hunted. And that's the season that we're in as the church, too. Jesus is the rightful king, anointed as such. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and yet this world does not acknowledge him as such. And so it's a season of persecution, and we just happen to represent him in this world. Hey, I'm with the rightful king, and then bullets start flying at us, right? And so as a result, we understand that our assignment in this season of life is actually to live in a cave. And that, as opposed to the palace, that, that just rubs us the wrong way, though. It's like, Eric, uh, say it isn't so. So gaining the whole world versus gaining all of God. So there are a lot of scriptures on this that are going to talk about the fact that, yes, you could gain the whole world and lose everything, or you could lose everything in this world and gain all of God. And if I were to just sort of say, hey, if we were to create a measurement of the two, and I were to say, okay, so imagine you could have the whole earth, and it was yours. I mean, I don't know if you've ever just studied real estate values, but the composite real estate value of just Windsor would be so astronomical uh, that I mean, it would be hard for Bill Gates to just come in and buy a whole town. That's how expensive an entire town would be. It was just extremely valuable property is. And that's just one little town, let alone two towns in northern Colorado, a city. You know, how about just imagine if someone came in and said, I want to buy all northern Colorado. What's it going to cost me? Okay, let alone all of Colorado. Could you imagine if someone could afford buying all of Colorado? I'd like to buy all of Colorado. You do know that, that comes with skyscrapers and entire uh, sports facilities and arenas. And yeah, I want it all. That's some serious dollar value right there. Okay. Now, it's not just that, but it's all the wealth and minerals and oil in the uh, in the ground. I mean, the amount of value in real estate these days. Once fracking comes about, it's like, whoa, you just increased value right there. And that's why northern Colorado has value. So you take not just Colorado, but all the United States. I want to buy all the United States. If you own all the United States, you're a fairly wealthy person, don't you think? Okay, imagine if you had the opportunity to gain the whole world, to own it. It's yours, all of it. What if you had that privilege? You see, the logic in the Bible is going to say, even if you could have the entire world, it doesn't even come close to what you could have for all of eternity. So even if you could gain it, give it up, that you could get something even better. Something better than literally owning the entire world? For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So what we see is that the value of the soul is actually greater than the entire world. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So the logic of Jesus Christ, the creator, who seems to know and have a clear value system, is it would actually be better for you to maintain and keep your soul than it would be to even gain the entire world. Which means, you're just seeing the value system right there, is the entire world's value does not compare to one human soul. And that's an amazing statement. Gaining the whole earth. So I know that you guys, uh, I think Joseph Mockler in the past weeks, I don't know if it was in the advanced, but he went through, it was one of the names of God, and he went through, I think, light and the, the, the solar system of the universe. So I, I wasn't a part of that message, uh, so I'm not sure if this will uh, transgress or if this will match, uh, but it's still a wonderful meditation. Just a short part of what I'm doing, but it's still very interesting. 
On Earth, there is fame, applause, pleasure, power, wealth, travel, exotic foods, exotic people, entertainment, the latest gadgets, and the most technologically advanced means of serving yourself. All for the taking. It's there. Earth and the measurement of light. The Earth is 25,000 miles around. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That means that light can travel around the entire Earth 7.5 times per second. In light of the expanse of the entire universe and God's creation, Earth is but a speck, a pebble. You could gain that speck, you could gain that pebble in exchange for your soul, or you could gain something far greater. You could gain all of God. In heaven, there is Jesus forever and always. There is the intimate and personal love of the Redeemer, the joy of the Lord, peace that passes all understanding, the boundless creativity of the Creator Himself, and the sheer vastness of the sovereign God. So heaven and the measurement of light. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. For a bit of perspective, the speed of the fastest moving passenger jet is Mach 2, or roughly 1,550 miles per second, or 120 times slower than the pace of light. Earth can be traveled around at the speed of light 7.5 times per second. To get to the moon, light would take one second. To get to the sun, light would take eight minutes. To get to the nearest star system, Alpha Centauri, light would take four years. To get to the nearest galaxy, Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy, light would take 25,000 years. If Adam, if he had boarded a vehicle moving at the speed of light at the dawn of Earth's creation, would be 25% of the way to the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy right now with 19,000 years remaining. To get to the very edges of the nearest major galaxy, which is called the Andromeda Galaxy, light would take 2.5 million years. It is estimated there are roughly 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. So you could take this little speck called Earth and lose all that is Christ's. In other words, we have the opportunity to share in the vastness of the living God. God's asking you to see through his lens the life, the breath, that you were in right now and say, are you willing to give it to him? Are you willing to spend it for him? It is but a breath in the light of all of eternity. And if you had the choice and you could see with an eternal lens that even to have the most miserable version of life, like a Lazarus life on this earth now, and to have sores licked by dogs begging outside a rich man's gate and have him throw his trash on you when he comes out in the morning, even if it was to be the worst version of life, it is still better to give that life, to live that life here in the window, in the breath that we have, to gain eternity with Jesus Christ. That's just heavenly perspective right there. The strange call to risk everything in order to get something more. So what we see in the New Testament, in the New Covenant understanding, is that you're going to see responses. Like in the book of Acts, you're going to see people respond to this reality of the Messiah coming. You see, we didn't live in the culture that it was anticipating, 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 anticipating. And so you're going to see extreme response. When people realize that this is the Messiah, they leave everything. They set down their nets and they follow. Well, that's their career. They sell all that they have and they lay the money at the apostles' feet. I mean, these are extreme reactions, by the way. And what, what land are they selling? Promised land. That's like the most precious thing in all the world. I mean, you think you know, Windsor property is valuable. Well, imagine the sacred territory of God's chosen people. And you're literally going to sell it and lay it because literally the true promise has come. It's like the land was only a placeholder. This is the true promise. It's all in Jesus. And why am I going to hold on to earthly land when I could have heavenly land, when I could have Jesus, the fullness of him? 
So there's this strange call to risk everything in order to get something more. So you're going to see this interesting phenomenon take place throughout history. This is just one of our favorites at Ellerslie, is talking about Sir Ernest Shackleton. So this is excerpted from a book uh, called Quit You Like Men. Sir Ernest Shackleton, when he was about to set out on one of his expeditions, printed a statement in the papers to this effect. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the South Pole. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. It's sort of like saying, beggar position out at the gate of the rich man, uh, dog uh, will be supplied to lick sores. It's like, who wants that? Uh, except for that last line, honor and recognition in case of success sort of triggers a little something. In speaking of it afterward, he said that so overwhelming was the response to his appeal that it seemed as though all the men of Great Britain were determined to accompany him. What? You see, this is, this is the mindset of ancient Christianity, too, where they literally considered it the highest honor to die and to give their life as a martyr. It's like, cuckoo, what, what's wrong here? What, what's wrong with these people? You see, when you have the vision, in this case, the the romance of exploration and discovery was so high at this time that these men were willing to risk their lives in order to be a part, to be listed in the troop of men who discovered, who explored, who were the first ones to risk it all, the value of manhood back then. And the risk of manhood was so high that these men were lining up saying, I want to be a part of this. C.T. Studd from Cricketer and Pioneer Last June at the mouth of the Congo, there awaited a thousand prospectors, traders, merchants, and gold seekers waiting to rush into these regions as soon as the government opened the door to them. For rumor declared that there is an abundance of gold. If such men hear so loudly the call of gold and obey it, can it be the ears of Christ's soldiers are deaf to the call of God? And the cries of the dying souls of men? Are gamblers for gold so many and gamblers for God so few? Why aren't we lining up saying, God, open the doors? to the 1040 window, and we want to get in there. If there's any opportunity, any opportunity at all, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do know that you will likely die if you do that. I know, can you think of a better way to spend this one life than I have? You do know what I get in return, right? You do know what this equals. Life given fully to Jesus now, richness, abundance forever. You see, we understand the exchange. Suffering equals intimacy. Difficulty equals consolation. You see, there is a trade-off that is far greater. That when we relinquish something in the here and now, we know as Christians we are gaining something far greater in the hereafter. The invitation to the cave. So I have used this illustration many times uh, over the past, oh, I don't know, decade. And... For me, it, it says something, because it's the story of us. It's the story of us in relationship to this one known as Jesus. So I'm going to go back in time, though, and we're going to be uh, in the ancient land of Judea, in the days of Saul and David, and we have always had a really good working relationship with Saul. And, you know, when you have a good working relationship with Saul, you may hear rumor that God's upset with him, but it's like you can overlook a lot because he supplies you a lot. You see, he's king. And so he supplies you a little nice cottage. He supplies you protection from all the maniacs out there. I mean, he has a, gives you a whole military force. That, hey, it'll defend you. 
and you know, he, he gives you things. And you can look at it, you know, you have this nice cozy bed, a little Tempur-Pedic uh, topper on it. You know, you didn't have enough money to get the whole Tempur-Pedic mattress, but you have the Tempur-Pedic topper. And you know, you have a nice couch in there, a little coffee table, a little uh, uh, dresser over there with a mirror. Uh, maybe a little carving of an elephant. Uh, you know, he's like, Woo, you know, I can't make the elephant. A <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's a little cool carving that you got that was imported. And it's like, you got this really nice cottage you got windows on it that look out into the little street outside and shutters on it. And you, you like your, your life. And if someone said, so what do you think about your life? I, I have it pretty good. And you see, you're in good with Saul and, uh, you know, there's peace in the land right now. Everything's pretty comfortable. Now, you have heard rumors that there's some uprisings and some stirrings in the land. There's this maniac out there. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name's David. And I mean, according to Saul... I mean, Saul says, this guy's a lunatic, okay? He just, he like thinks he's king. Uh, and he's going around and, you know, getting followers to his evil agenda, which is to subvert the kingdom of Israel and to undermine Saul's regime. It's like, how dare he? And, and then Saul even puts his hand on your shoulder and says, you know what? If someone like David came into control, you'd lose everything. You know, no more house, no more Tempur-Pedic foam topper, uh, no more couch. I mean, it's, it's gone. And so you're like, oh, David. David stinks. And so your first inclination towards this thing that wants to take over the land in which you're comfortable is a threat. It's a threat. Your entire perspective of David is in the dumps from the very beginning because you were influenced by Saul and his culture that he's created, which is determined to expel David from it. So it's very difficult to when you're in that state, if someone said, hey, why don't you leave everything? Why don't you leave your, leave your cozy, cozy cottage and go live with David in a cave? Okay, what does that sound like if you're in the state that you know, I'm describing? You're comfortable, you're happy, you hate David, you love Saul. You love your comforts, you have friends, you have a nice job. I mean, I, I don't know what you do, uh, but maybe you like polish uh, Saul's sword. You know, and it's a good job. You know, it doesn't pay extremely well, but, you know, you get into some neat uh, moments where you can go to uh, different meetings and gatherings and meet some cool people in Israel, you know, because you get in, you're, you're a sword polisher. And, you know, you got some good perks that are there, but you're fine. And an invitation to the cave doesn't work on you right now. It sounds ridiculous if someone came up to you and says, uh, they give you a little five spiritual uh, ways to get to the cave track. And you're like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> Have no interest in living in a cave with a rock for a pillow. No. Why would I go after that? Why would I give up my comforts for that? You get a good point, okay? If that's all you know, and if you're believing Saul and his wicked regime, then you're not going to have any attraction to David. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him, and every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Isn't it interesting, the ones that gathered to him? Did you notice that there was, it was actually mentioned what sort of people they were? They were people that were, well, let's look, look at the list, in distress, in debt, and discontented. It doesn't say the ones that were comfortable, that had all their debts paid, uh, and that were feeling really good about life. You see, it's fascinating. 
but there's a process that needs to work in our soul of showcasing our need. We need to know our need. And if you don't have need, if you don't recognize you're sick, you don't seek a physician. That's actually a Jesus quote right there. You know, in other words, you're not going to be going after a physician or a doctor if you're healthy or if you perceive yourself to be healthy. And so what God does is he gives us the law, which is supposed to expose our, our sin. It's supposed to expose our need. It's supposed to expose our sickness. And when we see it, we actually are ready to understand the value of Jesus Christ and what he has done. So imagine this. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the cave of Adullam. They will be hunted, despised, and in constant danger. There will be no pay, no plumbing, and no pillow. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. They will be outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Rejection from society, certain. But they will share in the immense glories of David's kingdom when he gains his rightful throne. Now, how you appropriate that in ancient Judea is all depends on your perspective and where you're coming from. Because if you're in debt, you're desperate, and uh, you're, what, what was this other thing? Distressed, in debt, and discontented. Well, then, and, and you actually believe that God did anoint David, and David is the rightful king. I mean, there's a lot of factors in here, but that isn't the most attractive list there. To live in a cave, to be hunted, despised, and in constant danger, to have no pay, no plumbing, and no pillow. I mean, there's a lot of downsides to this, guys. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution? It doesn't say possible. It's just a guaranteed? Outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed? Rejection from society certain? How you doing? So let me introduce you to Christianity because we didn't live in ancient Judea, but we do live now. Men, and if you're a, a girl in here, you could say, and women, wanted for hazardous journey to Calvary's cross. Death to self, relinquishment of all control, utter humbling of the inner man are prerequisites to the journey. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. Rejection from society certain. Benefits too great to calculate. So there's Christianity for you in a nutshell. Do we know the cost? You see, when someone sets out and they don't understand the suffering, the tribulation, and the persecution, the first time they face a trial, they have a tendency to turn back, just as we see in the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, what was the, the guy that, that once they got to the slough or the slough or the slough, however you pronounce that word, the slough uh, of despond, that he turns back? What was his name? Because pliable. pliable? Mm -hmm. We don't want to be pliable. We want to be Christian. We want to understand that this is what we signed up for. Yet we also need to recognize that there needs to be a joy set before us. Without a vision, we perish. We need something before us. It needs to be a picture of the exalted risen Christ. We need to see triumph. It's very difficult to go through difficulty when you don't have triumph in front of you. When you don't see that all of this leads to something greater. That God turns all of this to good. You see, he's a converter. And though you are in a slew, slough, 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 uh, what's the other option? Uh, slough, uh, if you really pronounce it bad, of despond, then if you don't know that there is hope, remember who helps him out? It's hope that actually helps him. If you don't have hope, boy, it's difficult. If any man come, after, come to me, says Jesus, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Or what king, going to make war against another king, sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So in other words, you need to recognize that you are going out against a foe. You are entering into hostile territory. And God says, just as someone who is going to battle must recognize what the costs are, what it's going to take, and if they should go forth, do you recognize that to go forth into this calling, this commission, you need to forsake all that you have. This is how you live as a Christian. If you don't forsake all, then you do not have sufficiency here. Because to get sufficiency here, you have to let go here. This first life has to let go so that you have the grace in your second life, in your newborn life. If you hold on to first life things, then when you get here, you do not have the grace because you didn't make the exchange. You must let go of life, let go of hopes and dreams and desires, plans and ambitions, so that God can give you grace. And over here then, you have grace to face whatever comes against you. Why? Because you followed and heeded the word of God. So likewise, whosoever he or she be of you that forsakes not all that he or she has, he or she cannot be my disciple. To be the disciple, we need to let go. And so I, I go through this exercise quite a bit. You know, I was even doing it last night where I evaluate because there's certain things I prefer in life and there's certain things I'm, I don't prefer, okay? I'm not attracted to. And like, for instance, I don't particularly care to travel around and live out of a suitcase, okay? Just, just honest with you. I'm, I'm a homebody and that's what's funny is I've traveled all over the world. And yet I'm not attracted to it, but I've said, God, I'm willing. But if you were to lay it before me and say, God would say, Eric, what do you want for your future? I would say, well, God, okay, thank you for asking. I'm going to lean, uh, if I had a vote in here, away from a lot of travel, and I'd like to just sort of set roots down because I don't get to set roots down because I'm always moving, always changing. Everything's different. God's always changing things up on me, sending me places. And I, I don't particularly like flights and planes and travel. And some people do. That's what's weird. Some people are like, oh, can't we pl change places, Eric? I don't want to stay here. And so for me, I need to say, God, I'm willing. For you to stay in one place, like who's the guy from It's a Wonderful Life? What's his name in that? George Bailey. George Bailey, his challenge is to stay put in Bedford Falls and set down roots. And so it's, I'm the opposite of George Bailey, you know, as far as his inclination to be a National Geographic explorer you know, no, I have no interest for that. I'm fine just looking at the National Geographic and seeing it. I, I don't need to go there. And that's a weird quality because I have traveled more than a lot of people. And yet it's not because I'm attracted to it. It's because I've let go. There's certain places that I'm not inclined towards, like the Middle East. That doesn't attract me. As far as a missions, you know, I have a missions heart. And it's warmed. When you bring up certain people groups, it's warmed. And then there's other situations like reaching ISIS soldiers that I find myself, 
uh, instinctively pulling back from and saying, well, I'm sure, God, that you have someone different for that. Because that's not the way I'm probably best used. And yet, so what do I do? I go through the exercise of saying, but God, it's not my will, it's yours. And if you knew that it was best to use me for that, here I am, send me. And that exercise has been very, very important in my life because I find that I have limits to my obedience at times. I don't recognize I have them. I don't like purposely stick in a limit and say, oh God, I'll do everything but this. Yes, you have everything but, but you can't do this and can't ask me to do this. I mean, I, you know, that, that's just understood, right? We, ha we have an understanding between us. And so whenever God allows me to see that I've put a little limitation on that, a little caveat, a little disclaimer, and his spirit finger touches it and says, Eric, what, what is this? You've got some small print here. It's like, oh, uh, well, uh, how'd that get there? Uh, <laughs> it's weird how we just have that. And to freshly lay that small print before God and say, God, no small print. What you want, I say yes to. A beggar outside of a rich man's gate, garbage being thrown on me daily, with a dog given to me that can lick my sores. It's sort of nice having a dog, but this is probably going to be a wild mangy dog that you know, has rabies, right? Uh, so how do you respond? Are you willing to say, yes, Lord? Knowing the benefit. So what are the benefits of coming to the cross? Well, what's funny? I, I used to ask my mom, tell me about heaven. Tell me about heaven. And there, she had these books with pictures. There were these paintings of heaven. Of course, everyone's guessing, right? We have certain things we know. Like my kids ask me things about heaven. I say, well, you know, they, they say, can we fly in heaven? I go, well, we don't know uh, the answer to that, but maybe. Uh, can you breathe underwater in heaven? I, it doesn't say anything about that, but maybe. I, I, my brain charges on those things, too. I really enjoy the topic of heaven. I used to think of having an unlimited uh, stack of drawing paper. And because obviously I had some problem when I was young of always running out of drawing paper, you know. So I was just thinking in heaven, we'd never run out of drawing paper. And I'd have pencils that would never, you know, run out, you know, never dull and get into the little stub. Uh, and I could just draw all day long. You know, to, and I, I wanted to play football in heaven. And maybe it could be tackle football that my mom allows me to play. Because my mom never let me play tackle football. We could play tackle football. And then I had a thought. It's like, oh, I could just see it. Jesus won't let anyone win. So it'll be always a tie. And I was like, oh, God, that sounds boring. And so I, was, I would deal with, I would exercise my understanding of this. But here's what I can say. It doesn't matter how great my imagination is. It's the kingdom of heaven is exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I could ask or think. So that's where we start. That's our premise point. In other words, we could try and troll the desk. We could brainstorm here. You know, I, I've thought about how good food will taste in heaven when I have a new body, right, and a new tongue. I have a new taste bud system, right? And could you imagine if, like, the taste bud system we have down here on earth is limited, so it has a scope, sort of like God has built in a, a limiter to it so that heaven will be so spectacular that, say, the value of taste could explode up to 1,000 points, right? In, in the fullest sense in heaven. And so God has a limiter, and we can go up to like three uh, here. And so you can taste this most scrumptious thing on earth. Like, oh, wow, that's good. But in heaven, there's no limiter to it. It's like, poof, goes all the way up, and your new creature uh, tongue is able to taste this fruit. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, that's, that's the way my brain works, right? All I know is that I'm not 
even going after the fruit or the flying or the exploring underwater with being able to breathe. When I was young, that's what intrigued me. But now that I'm old, something different intrigues me. There's a reason why I'd be willing to live as a beggar outside a gate. There's a reason. I'm going to unpack that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's how we started. What leads a man to live in a cave? What would cause someone to say, yes, I'll be the beggar. Yes, you can bring the dog and he can lick my source. Yes, Lord, I accept this very unique trial in my life. What leads someone to do that? It's not the cave. It's not that begging is fun. It's not that having sores is fun. It's not that. It's like, oh, that would be a cool way to spend my life. I'd like to be a beggar. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'd like to have sores all over my body. It's not that that attracts us. Listen to this. It's not the cave itself. It's the beloved one who lives in the cave. You see, when you fall in love with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if he's in a palace or if he's in a cave. If someone says, but he's in a cave. I don't care, he's in a cave. When you fall in love with someone, see, some of you are married, some of you not. But when you fall in love with someone, you don't really care if, you know, like say you're in the Valley of Elah and it starts to, you know, you had this whole beautiful thing, a picnic you were gonna have in the valley and you had it all set up, but a thunderstorm comes up and you have to run into one of the caves. And it's like, yeah, that's a downer. You had a great plan. Maybe if you were the guy, you were going to propose. It was going to be a great moment, right? So you have to scamper into a cave. You're drenched with water. Uh, however, all of us know in this story, this isn't like a bad scene. Why? Why? Because uh, you're with the one you love. And, and someone could say, but you're in a cave. I don't care <laughs> where I'm at. I'm in love, okay? And because I'm in love, I really don't care if I'm in a cave, in a beautiful meadow, beautiful mountain scene, nice lake with swan on it. Makes no difference because I'm entranced right now with something so much more important than all that stuff. So what do we know about Jesus? He is fairer than the children of men, the chiefest among 10,000, the bridegroom, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, a bundle of myrrh, a cluster of henna blooms. Yes, he is altogether lovely. He is my beloved and my friend. Even if heaven were a dark cave, just imagine for a second, you know, all of this streets of gold and, you know, big tree with fruit on it and, you know, the glory of God shining forth. There's no need of sun because he's the sun. Okay, take all that out just for a second. We can't, I know we don't need to take it out, but I'm just going to take it out for a second and imagine that eternity was a cave. Well, that's an interesting challenge here. So you're saying it's a cave. Even if heaven were a dark cave, if that is where our fair king lives, then let us go to the cave. In other words, when it just bakes down to it, we're not doing it for the street of gold. We're not doing it for the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven and the 200 billion galaxies. God, are you going to give me one of those that I could rule? That's not the reason we're doing it. Because even if he gives us a crown, we're going to take that crown off and throw it at his feet. It's for him. He is worthy. And so you see all the triumphant songs in Revelation, you're going to see that echo over and over again. You are worthy. You are holy. It's not, hey, God, what do I get now that I'm in heaven? Hey, God, when do we get to the gift time where you give us gifts? That's not why we're there. He is the gift. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. Whoa. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Whoa, God is going to come to this earth? 
I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. He shall come to the cave. We're in the cave now, if you want to say it that way. And even if you want to look at it, even how you describe the, the place where Jesus descended into, into the bosom of Abraham, the place where those that believed uh, were kept, it's like a cave. He went into the lower regions and brought captivity captive. He, he escaped out of it with them. And in other words, this is exactly what he's done. He's gone to the cave, just as David was willing to go to the cave and then brought forth triumph. His place is our place. So where he lives, we live also. If he lived on a cross, we'll live on a cross. If he lives in a grave, we'll live in a grave. But when he exits the cross, we exit the cross. When he triumphs over the grave, we triumph over the grave. And when he goes to the throne room of grace and takes his seat in the Holy of Holies, that's where we go. We go where he goes. His place is our place. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you were saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the story of invitation. So you're in the loyal service of Saul and you've already heard about the crazy lunatics in the service of David, these people that leave everything and go and live in a cave. You've got to be kidding. What's wrong with these people? And so this is the story of us. When we're first hearing about this gospel, about this Jesus, depending on your lens, if you've been infected with the notions of Saul's regime, it is very difficult to comprehend the, the sanity of any of these people that are leaving everything and going to uh, David. Of course, what you think is, well, they were in debt. Yeah, I could see exactly. The government was hunting them down. I, I know exactly. They were discontent. They, they had problems. Yeah, that's exactly right. They did have problems, and they recognized that they needed a savior. <laughs> they need someone to help them with their problems. It's actually a wonderful gift. So what shocks you is that your life begins to have problems because God loves you, and he can't allow you to just remain comfortable in your little cottage. And so as a result, you find yourself having some difficulties. And, you know, you were hanging out with Saul polishing his sword uh, the other day, and he barked at you. He, he spoke to you in a tone that you haven't heard before. And, you know, he actually uh, kicked you out of his presence and he, he uh, put a tax on you that is more than your payment that you received from him. And so you're, you know, at home looking at your bills and they're stacking up and there's threats of you losing your little cottage. And it's like, what? And it, it, your life had been so good. And then suddenly... You have problems. You have challenges. And Saul is getting sort of rude, sort of mean. He's threatening. If anyone looks at David, if anyone talks to David, I'll kill him. And he's like, whoa, excuse me. I've always been loyal to you. I have no thought of David. Why do you keep bringing up David? He's posting little signs all over on trees, you know, a little drawing of David, wanted. And so you're in your house. It's illegal to talk with David. But more than that, it's illegal to even look at David. Okay, you have to totally distance yourself. And so rumor comes, and it starts passing through the town, that David and his men are passing through. And so they actually ask you to batten down uh, your, your doors, your windows, and to close your shutters, you know, make sure you can't see out. Because even looking at David is a sign of betrayal. Okay, you don't even look upon this guy. He's wicked, evil, bad stuff, right? And so you're in your cottage, and it's all black in there because you have it all boarded up. And suddenly you hear a song singing. It's a rich baritone. 
It's a strong voice, and it sounds happy. Now, what's weird is you haven't realized that you're not happy until you hear happiness, and suddenly it exposes the fact of your deep sorrow and your deep incompleteness. Something is wrong in your life. You didn't notice it until you heard the song, and you hear this song, and it is entrancing. It is, it is so fascinating to you that you do something that you shouldn't do. You peek. I mean, you're so interested. So you, you open the, the shutters just a little, and you peek out. I mean, what kind of harm is that going to have, right? And when you do it, you see David, and he's doing one of those like Jewish dances. He's doing his thing in the streets. And then he stops, lands, turns, and looks right at you and winks. And you panic. You, you close the shutters, and you're like, ah, ah, ah. And you don't know what to do because that was so directed to you. That crazy man who seems like he has something that you wish you really had looked at you and actually showed a certain knowing, like he was interested in you, like he understood you. Whoa, whoa, what was that? Then it gets more weird, guys, okay? I mean, that, you blew it right there. That is against Saul. Uh, you do know that that is politically and socially incorrect to look at David. I can't believe you did that. This is your story, by the way. I'm telling your story. I'm exposing it to everyone. So then, you're, you're in your panic mode. You're like, okay, okay, hold yourself together. And you look over, and there on your dresser is a letter. How'd that get there? I mean, no, your, your doors are locked. There's a letter there. And what's weird is you know exactly where it came from. You know who it's from. But how it got there, you have no idea. In all your self-preserving to keep this David away, he somehow crept in and left a letter. And it has his seal on it. It's like one of those goopy you know, waxen seals, you know, with maybe a lion or maybe it's a star of David. Well, you know, one of those things. Either one would be cool. And so what do you do? I mean, even to touch it, even to have it in your home is betrayal. It like exposes the fact that you peaked. I mean, oh, what's that doing here? And what you should do is probably go to Saul, take it to Saul and say, I'm so sorry, Saul, I peaked. Do whatever discipline you need to do to me, but I am not going to read this. You can see that the seal has not been broken. I am a good boy or good girl because it's your story too. I don't want to just think that it's mine. But what do you do? You can't help it, guys. You see something is stirring inside of you and you break the seal. Oh no, that is betrayal of Saul. You open it up and you read it and it is written in the hand of David. And it basically, if I was going to give a paraphrase to it, says, I know you desire more. I desire to have you with me. Come to the cave and discover my love. Share in my strength. Live and enjoy my life. And it's like signed, David. Or the beloved one. That's what it means. Uh, the loved one. And so you're, uh, you're like shaking. I, what, what do you do with that? Well, what's amazing is you look around your room and all this stuff that you've always cherished, your bed with the Tempur-Pedic foam, your couch, your little coffee table, remember that elephant on top, your dresser, all these things, your cozy little life that was so good suddenly seems so empty. And you're ready to let it all go. Now, wait, wait, let's, let's get some sanity back here, guys. You do know that David is hunted. The entire governmental system of the day is set against him. And if you leave this, there's no coming back. 
You do understand this, right? And yet, you saw that smile. You heard that baritone. You saw him look at you. You read that letter. He desires you. You have been invited to a cave to give up comfort for a cave. And yet every single one of us in here, I mean, if this is a good story, right, and we're like following along, wouldn't it be a disaster area if the, the end of the story is, and you stayed in your little miserable hut? Because it is miserable now. To not be with David is more miserable. If you're the rich man, you suddenly recognize that you have the privilege of becoming Lazarus. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone do that? Well, you need the intermediate stuff in there. Lazarus has something. That's why you want to be Lazarus. Lazarus has closeness and intimacy with Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm willing to be Lazarus if I get that. The rich man is impoverished of soul. I don't want to be him. I want to be Lazarus if Lazarus has Jesus. So the growing discontent, the unforgettable sight, the invitation, the pursuit, the arrival at the cave, and the test at the door. So you get... I mean, how you even know how to get to the cave? I mean, Saul can't find it, and yet you know exactly where to go. It's strange, but there's this magnet that is pulling you. The Spirit of God is wooing you to that very place to live in Christ. And so when you get there, his mighties are guarding the door, right? Guarding the cave entrance, and they're like, whoa, 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 as you come up. Because just to be honest, you don't look that mighty. You don't look like you've been swinging a sword. You've just been polishing swords. You don't know how to swing one. In fact, put a sword in any of our hands like, Poof. it's way too heavy. We don't know how to swing this thing. Well, what good are we going to be to the mighties? We're going to get in the way. We're going to obstruct things. They, they're good at what they do. I mean, they, they take down giants and wild beasts. And what are we going to do? We're going to get in the way. So there's a test at the door. The questioning voices. He's weak. Now, you could put a she in there unlearned in battle and pathetic in appearance. He, she can't swing a sword. He, she has despised our king and our work. And that's true. You know, we've been making fun of this. We've sided with Saul our entire life. We've been against them. He despised, he or she despised this very cave. He or she has labored alongside Saul to hinder the rise of David unto his rightful throne. He or she is unworthy of this cave. He or she brings nothing to the table but weakness. You know, there's a lot of good points there. However, the booming voice of David. I invited him. I invited her. He is mine. She is mine. Could you imagine the booming voice from the cave? I chose him. I chose her. I have a hope and a future for him. I have a hope and a future for her. Let him her through. Don't block his, her way. He, she, is no more undeserving than any of you, and I will make him, her, a mighty man, a mighty woman. Make sure you pick the right one on each of those. Come, I have a spot for you in this cave. So the reality. You have a rock for a pillow. You may live in a cave. You may be hated by Saul and all his firstborn cronies, but you are loved by the shepherd king. You may not look sane in the eyes of the world, but you have the king of all kings as your personal rescuer. Outmanned, outgunned, and, who, and outlawed. Let me read that again. That's, uh, somehow I messed up. Outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Who's in? And all of us raise our hands like, I want to I want, I go to the cave. Why would you want to go to the cave? Don't you recognize you have a rock for a pillow? 
What would lead a man to gladly leave riches, position, fame, worldly power, and earthly comforts behind? What would cause a man to gladly embrace the disdain, mockery, and revilement of the world for the pleasure of his king? What could possibly motivate a man to gladly suffer and endure hardships, dangers, tortures, and extreme privations for the expansion of his ruler's fame and renown? What could cause a man to smile at the notion of a painful death if it be for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of his master? Have you seen the beloved shepherd who fights for his sheep against any lion, bear, or giant who dares? The motive for the Christ-purchased man. It's for love, guys. That's why we do it. We love Jesus. You don't do it because it makes sense on paper. Okay, so I'm going to give up all my riches and I'm going to be a beggar at the gate. That doesn't make any sense if you just look at it on paper. That's a bad business move. However, if you recognize the investment, so you're saying, God, that if I give up all my riches here, I get the inheritance of heaven, which is chiefly himself. I get all of God, you're saying. So if I give up all I have, I get all of God? Because that's an incredible investment. If we were to put a value on 200 billion galaxies and all the value of God and his angelic host and all that he possesses, you try and calculate that mathematically and you have your little diddly squat existence because you don't own the world. <laughs> you actually don't hardly own a thing. Some of you, it's the clothes on your back right now and those were borrowed from your roommate's closet. <laughs> and God's saying, could you give up the little you do have? But God, it's not much. And in exchange for everything. To me, you put that on paper and it makes a lot of sense. It's logikos in the Greek. It's only logical. It's a reasonable act of service. That's the word logikos. To offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him. This is logikos. It is logical to do it. I am uh, going to skip that final quote. Let's just pray. Father, I pray that we would all see the amazing, startling, stunning logic of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has delivered to us an invitation to be found in him, to know him, to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, to know him intimately. Lord, no matter what we are offered in this earth, it pales next to that offering. So Lord Jesus, I personally say yes. And Lord, I pray that that would be the echo and a harmony line of every single one of us, that we would all say, yes, you are deserving, Lord Jesus. It's in the precious name that we declare this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.